0: We continue on this Communion Sunday morning our series in Luke's Gospel, and I ask that you turn there to Luke's Gospel, the sixth chapter, as we continue to work through the shortened form of the Beatitudes as found in Luke's account of the Sermon on the Mount. Luke chapter 6, 21b and 25b, the blessing and the woe, the corresponding woe. Let's bow together in prayer. Our Father, we are deeply grateful that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And that through him, all of the sorrows of our hearts may be poured out before your throne of grace in the assurance that in our weakness, you hear us in his perfection and strength. And we ask that even now, whatever sorrows, whatever complexities of heart, whatever difficulties, struggles, or strifes may fill the souls of your people here, that we now will be enabled to cast them upon the Lord, knowing that you care for us and to hear you speak in your word. And we ask, as always, that your people would become more Christ-like as we sit under the exposition of sacred Scripture, but also that those who may be among us who do not know the Lord Jesus at all would be sovereignly drawn out of darkness into light out of the kingdom of Satan into the kingdom of your own dear Son, through whose name we pray, asking your blessing upon this portion of worship in which you speak to us through your word. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Will you stand with your copy of God's word in your hand? Luke chapter 6, 21, the second part. This is the word of God. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Verse 25, the second part Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. The word of the Lord, please be seated. Once again, you see that this is absurd by worldly standards. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Indeed, it is a reversal of all human standards. True joy comes to those who are spiritual mourners. And this is not natural, this is supernatural. So this is not carnal mourning, this is spiritual mourning, gospel mourning, a mark of knowing the Lord, a sign of life in the soul, gospel grief. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. So let's begin by asking the question, what is gospel grief or gospel mourning? And before answering that question, let me simply point out that Matthew uses the verb pentheo, that is translated mourning. Luke uses the term klio, that means to weep. Luke uses a synonym or a close relative to the word in order to help us to understand that those who mourn are those who are spiritually those who weep. And undoubtedly, the Lord Jesus Christ, as he spoke and preached on spiritual mourning, would have used the term weep. So to unpack mourning, it's natural to speak of weeping I'm speaking to people of God today who, as we move along in the sermon, will be able to say, yes, yes, I really do get it. I really do understand. I know what the minister is speaking of. I understand something of spiritual mourning and how it is deepening in my life, as well as the joy of the gospel, these things simultaneously. And perhaps there will be someone else here this morning. You have never mourned or grieved over sin. You have no idea what it means to weep over sin before God. You're a stranger to these things. You have no idea what these things mean. So what is gospel mourning? Gospel mourning is grief and hatred of sin, and it takes many forms. We who are believers in Christ mourn over the sins of our society, just as in Mark 3, Jesus was deeply grieved at their stubborn hearts. Only this week I was listening to news items, as I'm sure you are as well, and hearing the absolute sinful craziness of our culture. As college students on a campus were being interviewed about sexuality, and the answer that was given time after time after time that they're receiving, of course, from their professors is that gender is fluid. It is whatever you make it to be. Do I have to demonstrate once again it is absurd? Life is absurd that is not lived under the authority of the word of God. But as I heard those things, echoing in my heart were the words of the Lord Jesus. Male and female, he made them. He created them. And my heart genuinely grieved for these young people on that college campus and grieves for a culture that cannot understand even these basic things that is so suppressed truth that it is living under such a lie and under the condemnation and wrath of God. But also the people of God mourn over the sins of the church, do we not? And here we see two main problems today, a low view of God and a low view of sin, and the concomitant of that, a high estimation of the thoughts and ideals of men around us. This is why the church's impact is so weak, because the church has become so superficial. Just look at what has become of worship today, so thoroughly man-centered. We're good at murmuring, but we are not often good at mourning. We are good at murmuring, but we are not often good at taking these things before the throne of grace and pouring our hearts out to God in grief and hatred of sin. This grief must be taken to the throne of grace. Over these things we should learn to afflict our soul, to weep as Christ did over Jerusalem. Just this week as I was thinking about this text, I was remembering what we read in the book of Ezra. In Ezra chapter 9, when Ezra grieves over the compromises of the people of God with their culture in that day... And it says in Ezra 9, 4, Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithfulness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And then he goes on to say in verse 6, O my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. And he goes on to say in verse 10, And now, O our God, What shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments. Do you not know what it means to grieve as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ over the sins of the church in our day and in our land, to pray that God would plow up the fallow ground? But one cannot begin rightly to be a gospel mourner, to grieve over the sins of culture or over the sins of the church who has not learned to grieve over his own sins, Gospel mourning is to become spiritually acquainted with my own heart. Gospel mourning is to become spiritually acquainted with your own heart. And even though I am new in Christ and rejoice in it, the seed of sin that is, that is in the heart of the damned in hell, the seed of sin is still in my heart as a believer. And oh, how I long for the day when there will be no more sin in my heart. Do you see why mourning follows the beatitude regarding poverty of spirit? Just remember Matthew's gospel as well as here in Luke. Remember Isaiah six, when the the prophet sees the Lord high and exalted upon his throne in vision. And as he sees him, he cries out, Woe is me, for I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. That's spiritual poverty. And then he said, woe to me, for I am undone. That is spiritual mourning. John Newton said, we cannot think of ourselves as worse than we really are. Now, I can almost hear someone saying, preacher, why don't you give us an upbeat message? This is not the whole of it, of course. There's redemption and adoption as sons and joy in the Lord. All of that is true, and, but we're dealing this morning with a beatitude that speaks of spiritual mourning, are we not? And I agree with Martin Lloyd-Jones who says that we are far too healthy in our own eyes. With regard to our own hearts, we will have reason both to grieve and to rejoice simultaneously. Blessed are you who weep now is a synonym. Blessed are you who weep now is a synonym for a deeply repentant heart before the Lord. It's a synonym for repentance. Now, there can be false mourning. Judas betrayed Jesus and mourned, but it was false mourning. It was not spiritual mourning. It was simply natural affection. There can be hypocritical mourning. In 1 Kings 21, after the incident of Naboth's vineyard, God condemned Ahab through Elijah And we read in that passage, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. But it was temporary, and it was worldly, and it was all a lie. And Ahab hung his head like a weeping willow, but his heart was as hard as a rock. There can be mourning because someone is concerned over the punishment of sin without being concerned over the intrinsic nature of evil and sin against God. So Pharaoh could cry, take away the plague, but he had no concern for God's glory. And in Genesis 4, Cain complained, my punishment is greater than I can bear, but he had no concern for the God that he had offended. It is possible to sorrow and not to repent, to have a counterfeit repentance A kind of false repentance that is unconcerned with God, unconcerned with his character, his holiness, his glory, and not concerned for the cross of Christ. But true mourning, true gospel mourning, gospel weeping, well, if anyone has not repented, he is still in his sins. And true gospel mourning, as Dabney put it, repentance feels the disease, faith embraces the remedy. Where there's true gospel mourning, we feel the disease, and by faith we embrace the remedy, who is Christ. So let me give you these characteristics of true gospel mourning in the heart of a true believer in Jesus. True gospel mourning is that which mourns over sin because it offends God. We are not simply concerned that there is a future punishment. That is a concern, but it's not simply that. It is the offense against the holiness of God. So we do not speak of little sins. As the Westminster Confession speaks of sin, the filthiness and odiousness of his sins is contrary to the holy nature and righteous law of God. That's our concern. When Jonathan Edwards thought of his sin, he cried out infinite upon infinite, infinite upon infinite, infinite upon infinite. Do you know that in your soul? Do you know that? Mourning over sin because it offends God. True gospel mourning mourns over sin because it hinders fellowship with God. And when we confess our sins, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confession, homologa'o means to say the same thing. We are actually saying the same thing about our sin that God says about our sin. And so pain arises in the heart of the true repentant believer for not hating it more, and repentant hearts long for God and communion with Him and forgiveness. True gospel mourning, this internal weeping of the soul that sometimes spills over into the eye, is a mourning over sin, and it is very specific. We know that we have sinned against God And we are concerned that the specific sins of our lives are hated and turned from and repented of. Psalm 51.4, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Clement of Alexandria said that Peter never heard a cock crow but what he wept. So gospel mourning is the opposite of carelessness regarding sin. Gospel mourning also produces something almost unheard of in the church today. It produces self-loathing. Job, at the end of the book, sees something of the greatness and majesty of God, and he repents in dust and ashes. Paul, the apostle, the believer in the seventh chapter of Romans, cries out, Oh, wretched man that I am. Now, that's the true Paul, but not the whole Paul. That's the true Christian, but not the whole Christian. Romans 8 comes after Romans 7, with all of the blessing and wonder of what it means that we're adopted as sons. And the wonder of it is, and every Christian knows what I mean, in the Christian heart, There dwells simultaneously grief, mourning over sin, and exultant joy that we are adopted sons and daughters of the living God. Talk about a reversal of the world's standard, putting the world's standard on its head. Either you rejoice or you don't. Either you are grieving or you're not. But no, in the Christian heart, Both of these things will be there simultaneously until we reach heaven. Gospel mourning produces a deeper hatred of sin as we move along and mature in our Christian lives. We do not become less concerned. We become more concerned about sin in the heart. 2 Corinthians 7.11, For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, what zeal. So are you a hater of sin in your own soul? Are you a hater of sin? Every Christian is. Gospel mourning produces also renewed obedience. A conscious renunciation of sin that says, I want now to walk more faithfully than I have in the past. I want to walk more obediently than I have in the past. I want the words of the Lord Jesus to fill me. If you love me, keep my commandments. And so the scriptures speak of this attitude when it says, wash your hearts from wickedness, incline your hearts, circumcise your hearts, rend your hearts and not your garments. The prodigal came to his senses and said, I will get up and go to my father. True repentance, true hatred of sin, true gospel mourning, true grief, results in change. Because what is this holiness of life for which you long as a believer anyway? Jonathan Edwards told us so beautifully that holiness is but a superlative love for God's beauty. What is holiness of life? It is a superlative love for the beauty of God that we are so, shall I use the word, so God-intoxicated, so God-filled, so God-controlled, so longing to know the one who did this great thing of redeeming me through the blood of his Son. I see the beauty of his character, the beauty of his attributes, the beauty of his plan of redemption, the beauty of who he is, and I long to be like him. Insofar as it is possible, I long to be conformed to his image. So I hope we've answered the question, what is gospel mourning? But secondly, let's ask another. What comfort is promised to gospel mourners? Now notice 21b again. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. The promise is laughter and comfort, the laughter and comfort that comes to the converted. Grief and hatred of sin produced by the Holy Spirit is an evidence of grace. It is a sign of new birth. When a child born, the child is born, the child cries. When we are born again, we cry over sin and we laugh at our redemption, how wondrous it is. Zechariah 12.10, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me on whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Did you hear it? In that text, you have both the joy and wonder of mercy and grief and hatred of sin, The joy of mercy mingled with the tears of the recognition of sin. To be satisfied with an empty profession, to feel secure when sinning with no desire to hate sin is a sure sign of not being truly converted. So what comfort, what laughter, what joy comes to the heart of those who are spiritual mourners? The laughter that comes from communion with the Holy Spirit. He is our paraclete. He's the one called alongside. He's our mediator and helper. We pour out our sorrow over sin. He pours the joy of the Lord and forgiveness into our hearts, showing us our sin for our own good. As Isaac Watts put it, when his strokes are felt, his strokes are fewer than our crimes and lighter than our guilt. The foundation of our comfort then is laid deep in the conviction of sin. And we will never learn how precious is his consolation until we have learned to despair of ourselves. Empty hearts are the hearts that he fills. Desperate hearts are the hearts that he saves. And we cannot begin to glorify and enjoy God until we begin to hate our sin by his grace. The Puritan Sibs put it this way, the more a man dies this way, the more he lives. The more he weeps, the more he laughs. And the more he can weep over Jesus Christ, the more lightsome and gladsome his heart is. The Puritans had a way of putting things, didn't they? How lightsome and gladsome your heart is. As, simultaneously, you learn to weep and mourn over sin. But there's something else, and I really want to underscore that because I, as a pastor, know what some of you are going through. I want to to underscore the laughter and comfort of a secure future for believers in Jesus. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. And Paul says in Romans 8, 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. And though I acknowledge my sin I give glory to God for saving a wretch like me and for the foretaste of the joy that I will know forever that is in my heart because of the spirit of God that indwells me and I know from his word and I'm comforted by that spirit that all tears will be wiped from the faces of his people everyone and much of our weeping now is not only because of our personal sin And we rejoice in forgiveness. But much of our weeping now is because of the injustices that are found in a fallen world and the wrong that has been done to us by others. Think how often in the Old Testament God's people weep because of the exile or because of persecution or because of injustices of all sorts. Psalm 137 begins, By the rivers of Babylon there we sat down and wept. And the great Isaiah chapter 40 begins, Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, because God's people are in need of the comfort of God. But in the New Testament, we are given the greatest of comforts. No Christian should develop, ultimately speaking, a victim mentality. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. The judgment day is ahead, and all will be made right. And the Christian knows this. And the struggles of this fallen world may make us weep, But, well, let's see what Paul says about this. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 4. Beginning to read in verse 7. 2 Corinthians 4, 7. Paul says... But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Now, notice this, these contrasts working their way like a spine through the text. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to things that are seen, but to things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul says that what you're enduring right now is a light and momentary affliction, How can he say that? Well, let's be sure that we understand that Paul understood these things too, existentially, personally. Let's turn over to the 11th chapter of 2 Corinthians. And as he opposes those who exalted themselves as super apostles in the church, he says in verse 21, chapter 11, to my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I am speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman with far greater labors. Now, this is what Paul endured. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. "...on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, dangers from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, and toil and hardship." through many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst often without food in cold and exposure and apart from other things there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches who is weak and I am not weak who is made to fall and I am not indignant and Paul calls these things light and momentary afflictions. Paul? What do you mean? Well he tells us Back there, what he means. It's a light and momentary affliction, he says in chapter 4, by way of contrast. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And Paul the Apostle, by divine inspiration, is saying to you in trouble this morning, with griefs because of injustices done to you this morning, if you'll only begin to lift your eyes and look to the glorious future that is promised for you, it will put this trial in perspective because there awaits for you. In the unseen, those things that are given to you by promise, that are eternal, it awaits for you, an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Paul puts it another way. In chapter six of Second Corinthians, verse 10. Again, he's going through this series of contrasts. We're treated as impostors, and yet are true, as unknown, and yet known as dying and behold and so forth. But in verse 10, he says, As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians 3, 21 through 23. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. Did you see that? All things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death, or the present, or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. By divine inspiration, Paul the Apostle says to you this morning, you are such a prince or a princess before the living God because you are pardoned by the precious blood of the Lamb and adopted as his son or daughter into his family, that whatever injustices are done to you compared to what awaits you is a light and momentary affliction. Get your eyes on those things promised to you that are yet to come. Live in light of them because already you possess Everything in Christ, all things are yours, even death. He says, Did you see it there? Even death, he says, is yours. You are not death's, death is yours because of your risen Lord. Light and momentary afflictions. We weep and we cry, but you will laugh because of the great contrast that is promised. And we just do not live in this reality as we should. I think the early church was more into this truth than we are, but this is part of the gospel weeping and gospel comfort that is promised in this text without doubt enabling us to live knowing that all things are ours and the time is coming when the old order of things will have passed and every tear, every, every sorrow, every tear will be wiped away by your loving Lord. Gospel mourner, the time is coming in which you will mourn no more. But what is promised to those who are strangers to gospel mourning? No sense of sin, no care that they've offended God, no grief or hatred. Verse 25b, back here in Luke 6, Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. So there in Iraq is this young believer being so horribly mistreated by a leader of ISIS who laughs over her that we can hardly believe the profundity of the injustice that is being done. The time is coming and the tables will be turned and he will mourn and she will laugh. There's no comfort to the wicked who abuses patience. And those who do so, your lives are like lumps of sugar. Your sugary joys will be dissolved by your tears of torment in hell. Not tears of repentance, but tears of despair. And if you do not trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of your life, your tears will never be wiped away. Never, 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 never. So laugh in sin here, mourn and weep irrevocably later. Mourn and weep, that is, genuinely repent by the grace of God of sin now. Rejoice forever with the Lord. Are you born again? Do you know Jesus Christ? Have you put your faith alone in him? Are you ready for death? Are you ready for the judgment? Gospel mourners are because we rejoice in forgiveness. Those who laugh and never weep over sin are not ready. And if that is you, we call upon you to flee the wrath that is coming, to flee your sin, to turn from it, that God by his grace may give you a spirit of gospel mourning and true faith to embrace Jesus Christ Is our prayer. Flee, flee the wrath of come, that is coming. Flee to Jesus Christ. Flee to the cross. Flee to the atonement. There is only one who can do per sinner's good, and that is Jesus Christ. Flee, flee to the cross of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And God's people said, amen.